Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the latest news we're reporting on, including the FHFA's announcement about a change in FICO scores and strong comments from MBA's president toward the CFPB. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by PennyMac TPO. In collaboration with their broker partners, they designed Power Plus, a next-generation broker technology platform that offers a fast, intuitive interface with features and functionalities to empower a best-in-class lending experience. With an enhanced guided workflow, the loan process is more efficient, accurate, manageable, and convenient. The platform speeds up the process at every step, minimizing the time brokers spend on the platform. At Penny Mac, being tech-forward and human-focused is why greatness lives here. Penny Mac TPO is a division of Penny Mac Loan Services, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS ID 35953, licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, sir. Always great to catch up on what we're doing. And it's been a big news week, as I feel like they all are right now in this cycle that we're in. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it has been. It's been super, super busy, uh, you know, both in real estate, title, appraisal, uh, and especially mortgage, of course, right? Because I, th- I think so many people are focused on where rates are and the Fed meeting is coming up next week. So um, there, there's been a lot. But, but I think a lot of it also stems from uh, what's been going on in Nashville. And I don't mean the honky tonk, I mean the MBA annual conference, <laughs> which you just got back from. So, so maybe we can start there, Sarah. I mean, you, you just finished the conference circuit, right? It's like, it's like a six week, like rally and, and you're all over the place. Uh, perhaps you could share, you know, how does this conference season stack up to, you know, maybe not the pandemic because I, you know, uh, different set of circumstances, of course, but, but maybe 2019, like. How were people feeling? Was it as busy? You know, what 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 can you tell me about this? No, I think it's really interesting. Yes, it was a full court press. And I know many people in the industry feel the same way because they were at all the same conferences. You see them over and over. Um, MBA Annual was definitely a um, great location. Loved Nashville. Had never been there before. Did not realize that it is like the bachelorette capital of the world. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did not know that. So uh, now I know because there were many groups of, you know, inebriated uh, bachelorettes uh, wandering the streets. But there was also a ton of uh, really uh, a whole bunch of mortgage folks. In fact, I think that their numbers this year were back to 2019 numbers as far as the number of people who attended. So no slowdown there. Definitely seeing a lot of people. I would say that um, Nashville, uh, the way the conference was set up, you had, you know, a the conference center is ringed by a whole bunch of hotels. And so it felt like most of the action was taking place around the conference center. Uh, Sessions were well attended, but a lot of business happening outside, which I think is just very normal for MBA conferences, but uh, still had a good vibe. I think uh, a couple of things that really struck me was 
people are very realistic about what's happening. There's nobody who's, <laughs> you know, I mean, they are right in the thick of it. So, so there's no Pollyanna out there who's like, I'm going to do 100% no, no. more business than I did last year. I'm going to absolutely kill it. You know, people are saying, look, you know, these are tough times where we're going to have to adapt. Yeah. I mean, just when you're talking to just regular people, just like, you know, striking up conversations. Uh, but they're also, you know, they feel like many of them have been through other cycles. And so they can compare and contrast and be like, you know, this, this part is really tough, but hey, it's not like to, you know, 08, because we don't have this or, and they, I feel like there's still confidence that like, while, um, while this is a really challenging environment, there are some things we can do. And basically, like, what a lot of people see is like, it's going to weed out some competition and they're going to be better on the other side. And that's true. We know that of every downturn, that doesn't mean it's fun or that their, their particular companies aren't going to suffer too, but there's definitely already like, okay, how do we take advantage of a, a different kind of environment? Um, when there's maybe less competition, you're definitely seeing a ton of M&A, which we know that people want it. Some people want to get bought, right? Some people want to do the buying. Um, and so I think that from my perspective, it was actually more optimistic than I, than I expected. Um, but, you know, that's also, you know, if you're talking to me, I'm at a, a media company. So you have to think, well, are people spinning it for me? I wasn't, th these are not like in the interviews I was doing, but just like in talking to people, you just never know. Plus, sure, the people, people are cognizant when they talk to a reporter. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's not not the case. I think the other thing is, uh, I you know, if you're talking to marketing people, then, you know, they, they're naturally, uh, they're going to look on the bright side. So, you right. know. Understanding the bias of who I might be talking to, but even at parties where people don't know who I am, we're just striking up conversation. Um, it is not all doom and gloom. It is very serious, and people are definitely, you know, we know we're in for a, a, a long winter. I mean, winter in many, in many, uh, you know, senses of that word. So there's no no uh, shortage of the fact that like things are tough, but there's also a lot of resilience of like, hey, I've you know, I've I don't know how many people I've talked to like. They've, I've been through three cycles. Um, so, you know, I mean, that, and that's right. If you've been here about 25 years, you've been through at least three cycles. And um, so they, they have some, they know what they're doing in that way, even though this one's different than others. So I think in that way, it was more hopeful than I thought it would be. Um, again, though, you're, you know, there's a, a bias there because these are the people who actually could make it to the conference. So right. that means we're not it's, talking you know, about like a junior underwriter who's, who's, you know, right. in like a $2,000 a night suite in Nashville. Right. And, and these are the companies that are making enough money to still be like, yeah, we've got travel budget and you can go and spend this sure. time and you're doing this. So again, you know, uh, but you know, if you ask me what that, what that looked like, that's what it was. I do think we had some pretty fiery sessions. I think one sure that did. really stands out was, um, you know, and Flavia covered them very well. Flavia Furlan Nunez, our, um, one of our top reporters here was at the conference and did just some amazing coverage. So if, if people didn't get to go, they should look up, um, what she said. And one of, one of the sessions that really was, she captured very well was MBA's Brokesmith takes aim at CFPB. Um, it's always really interesting to see how trade groups uh, react with the people that, um, you know, are the regulators of the trade groups. In some ways, the trade groups can get um, can take the heat for the regular members. Your, your general lender sure. is not going to take on the CFPB. It'd be a stupid thing for them to do is just to call down the wrath of the regulator on them. And so in some ways, you know, the, the trade associations can play that role of really saying what the industry would like to say. Um, to the regulators at the same time, they're also, I mean, they're an advocacy organization, so they also have their own dog in this fight that they're, you know, they have to play nice too, because they, they're looking to get some objectives, 
Um, so it was a pretty striking thing that Brokesmith um, really uh, talked pretty strongly about the CFPB. And afterwards, that's uh, lots, lots of people were talking about it. I was um, surprised so- how strongly he spoke out. He's, he's, he's a very smart guy. He's generally pretty amiable. Um, and, and it was, it was a fiery speech. It was absolutely, um, you know, very, very much targeted at the CFPB as well. And, um, and, and of course I, I didn't see any, I, I didn't hear from any representatives of the CFPB, but I'm, I'm sure they got wind of this as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, just quoting from the story one of the things he said is, you know, the director can act as judge, jury and executioner all in one. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, he, he did yeah. not hold back at all. And I think part of it is. Um, if you're in a, you know, if, when you're in the boom times, okay, you know, um, regulation, whatever people are, are worried about, it, but not so much now it's like, listen, that's, that's the last thing you need when you've got, you know, when you're just trying to survive, when you're trying to, to get any sort of profit or make your margin. And then you feel like, um, the government is piling on top of that with this. So I thought that that was really interesting. The CFPB, and, and we of also, course, I, I didn't mean to get across you, Sarah, I, we also know that the CFPB under Rohi Chopra is very focused on mortgage lending and servicing, and they've added a lot of attorneys to their enforcement division. And you know, I, I don't know if it's fair to say that they're looking for scalps, but um, they've they've made it very clear through their public statements, their blog posts, public appearances that, that Rohi Chopra has has made that they are not going to be asking nicely. They're not going to be giving people, you know, a few extra chances. They are going to be. Uh, ruling by enforcement, right? And then it's going to be by enforcement action. So if you're a company that has been, you know, maybe maybe just barely staying afloat, losing, you know, losing money quarter after quarter, and it's not like 2023 looks any kinder, suddenly now you have to worry about the specter of the CFPB, you know, looking at at the borrowers that you have and and the servicing operation that that maybe you haven't, you know, prioritized over originations over the last few years. So it it could be a scary prospect. I think too, you know, ruling by enforcement understandably comes under a lot of fire from the industry. From my perspective, you know, I'm not in the industry. I don't have a dog in this fight, but it just creates, you know, there's not a lot of certainty. It feels like what, what that means is like, you're going to do something. We're going to look for examples of what we don't want people to do and, and hold them up as examples to the whole industry when there's, there's a lot of people who are like, can you just not give us really specific rules? And I know that going back to, um, when you had Richard Cordray in charge, the first director of the, or, or not maybe the first, I can't remember, but the director of the CFPB during the Obama administration, when it, when it began, he really thought that the reason that you should do enforcement, um, this way or regulation by enforcement is because no matter how specific you get, Whatever kind of rules you want to do, people are going to get around them. So all you've done with the rule is outline, like, here's the rule. So now find the loophole. And I, you know, I can understand that. But I think that you're leaving out in that in that whole uh, thinking is like, if you want to actually do the rules. if it's, So, yes, the people who want to get a, around it are going to find ways to get around it. But say you really want to you really want to follow all of those rules, the letter of the law. And the letter of the law is not clear because you're going to do it by, you know, enforcement actions. I can understand why that's really yeah, frustrating. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of Honestly. housing policy experts who feel like the, the reason the CFPB leans so heavily on enforcement is because of dysfunction in Washington. And though they can't do like proper rulemaking, they can't really um, develop a series of, of, you know, codes of conduct that are going to be applicable and, and are going to work for both the lender and the regulator. And so, you know, it, it almost becomes like a rule by fiat, right? So. 
I also think that there specifically the, um, you know, there should be opportunity for notice and comment when they're enacting rules. And I heard that from at, at several different points in this conference. And that's one of the things that Brokesmet brought up is that, you know, I mean, there, there, there are ways to do this and rate ways to do rulemaking. And it's really unfair for the industry to just like, okay, this is now in, uh, this is now it. And we haven't heard back from you. Um, we haven't given you enough time to do that. The timeline, um, especially now we know because we covered all the time, been a ton of layoffs at companies. So now you have much smaller teams trying to do, um, the work of, you know, hope, of course, there's lots less work. That's why there's much smaller teams. But at some point, there is just like, I mean, a lot of people are gone. And so a lot of that industry knowledge, a lot of the how to how to do compliance, a lot of that might be not be there as well. And so, you know, it would the clearer and the more time you could have, the better. Yep. And, and generally, when these companies are making cuts, I, I know that they're often very thoughtful about how they make it and how their operations are going to function, you know, post-cut. Uh, but typically, you know, they're, they're looking to reduce their expenses and your highest expenses are almost exclusively personnel. And they typically come from people who are more experienced, right? You're, you pay for experience. And so when, when you do need to make those cuts, there are disproportionately going to be people who have the knowledge, who have that institutional understanding of, of how to make it work and, and, you know, and, and those sorts of interactions. So it, yeah, it, it could be risky. It could be problematic when, when you look at the big picture and, and, and the potential for regulators, not just the CFPB, of course, or state regulators or, or attorney generals that, that are certainly very interested in mortgage lending and servicing. Um, so it's, it's going to be, I think, a very different period. You know, you had the COVID uh, kind of servicing period, and this is not to suggest that we're beyond COVID. I, I know I just got my, my booster shot this morning. We are not past it, but. I do think that this is going to be a very interesting time for servicers coming up and, and how they respond. And, and I don't think that the CFPB is going to go light. They're going to have a pretty heavy touch. Well, and, you know, there's a reason why the CFPB comes up more in these conversations. And when's the last time you and I had this conversation about the FDIC? When is the last time uh, never. that, you know, I don't think never, never. No. or the OCC? <laughs> and it's because it was developed as a, as a, regulatory body in a whole new way. It was supposed, you know, it's kind of like the the cool kid of the regulators. Um, It came, you know, Dodd-Frank, and it was was looking from the consumer's point of view, and it really is a different kind of agency. And its relationships, relationship to lenders and servicers started in a time that was very fractious, right? And, And famously, uh, CFPB Director Cordray has called out, has used MBA conferences to call out the industry. So it's kind of funny uh, to see the, to see it flip flop here because, you know, I think it was 2015. I, I'll have to go back and look, but when he stood in front of services, servicers at the MBA servicing conference and basically told him, you know, you're doing a terrible job and and we expect more and we're going to come hard, down hard on you. And I got to give it to Cordray, man. He's, he's got the guts to stand up there in front of a room of, you know, 4,000 people and just be like, we're, we're coming after you, right? Um, and so I think that there is a long history uh, in this industry uh, between our, you know, the practitioners and the CFPB specifically because of the way that they do business, because of the kinds of things, the kind of uh, rulemaking they do, and because they're the kind of, uh, you know, agency that's going to stand up and call us out, you know, like directly. Right. That's the explicit purpose of it, right? I mean, it, right. it should not be friendly toward industry. You know, the whole idea is that it is it is a consumer watchdog, right? So, you know, you can certainly understand the frustration on the part of the industry practitioners who feel like, you know, they're kind of getting blitzed. And, and they don't have time to respond. And these are not, you know, like 
speedboats, right? These are like generally slow moving operations that, you know, it takes time to, to put in compliance measures and, and to really understand, um, you know, what the regulator specifically wants. It's not always extremely clear. And, and I, I know that these these lenders have an army of lawyers, but not every lawyer agrees on, on the interpretation either, right? So it's 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 going to be tricky. It's certainly something to watch over the next few years. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, they we have, all of the people in this industry have history here. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, they're not coming from a clean slate. Um, I think one of the other biggest pieces of news to come out that uh, people were a buzz out there and we see on our sites, one of the most... Um, trending topics, uh, stories that we have is the fact that the FHFA uh, is going to replace the classic FICO with more inclusive credit model. Huge story. And I'll, I'll, I'll go back to you on that because you edited that story. What did you get out of that? I, I, you know, (laughs) I I think it's interesting because everyone that I've ever spoken to has said, this is, this is something they should have done a very, very, very long time ago. When I say a very, 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 I I don't mean like two years ago, five years ago, I mean like 10, 15 years ago. They're so far behind and this credit model, um, I, I don't think it's purposeful. I don't think it's by design, but it does um, eliminate a lot of your biggest expenses, right? Like I'm a renter in in Brooklyn, you know, one of the most expensive places to rent. And fortunately I have good credit. Um, my credit would be so much better if somebody had taken into account that I'm paying three grand plus a month in rent and have done so reliably for the last decade, you know, and, and that never shows up in the classic FICO model. Utility payments, they don't show up. Your telecom bill, right? Like your phone bill or, or whatever, um, does not show up and they're going to show up under there. There are now two new, uh, models that they're going to be rolling out. So, um, I think it's really exciting. I think there are a lot of people who have been at a disadvantage who, you know, are, are more likely to be renters and who, you know, through, through many years of, of systemic, uh, you know, challenges, um, haven't had the opportunity to build credit and they will be in that box now. Um, so I, I think this is a, a very, um, huge story and, and maybe, not talked about enough. Right? No, I was going to say, you know, so I've been, uh, I joined Housing Wire nine years ago. And I will tell you that from the very beginning, this was one of the stories we covered. So you're right. Like, and, and I'm sure if you've been here 20 years, they've been using the same model for 20 years. I mean, at least five years in, you're kind of like, hey, we could do do a better job. And it's not like FICO. So so we have alternative uh, companies they could use, but even FICO itself, I mean, now they're, they're going to accept 10T, right? So we were at four. It's like they've every, you know, they come out with new models and new ways of scoring and new risk uh, models all the time. So it's not like, oh, well, no one's done the work or, you know, we don't have alternatives or Vantage uh, score now is going to be um, is going to be the uh, another alternative. Like it's not like these haven't been there. They have been here. So it's it's a great I think it's really good. And especially at this time um, to open up the credit box in a way that's safe. Right. So we're not talking about you know, crazy products that are, you know, uh, preying on people, but we're, we're talking about really helping people get into the, into a mode where they could own a home. Yeah. I think there's really, it, it's just, I don't think it represents more risk. We're, we're not talking about like factoring balloon payments or anything like that. Right. We, we are looking very holistically at what people actually have to spend their money on and when they pay their debts and rent, especially now is going to be your biggest monthly payment. 
in almost every case. And the fact that that hasn't been included is bananas, absolute bananas. And, and this is, I think, hopefully going to help a lot of potential homeowners who are black and Latino, you know, who have not had the same advantages uh, as it comes to homeownership opportunities as, as white borrowers. And, um, you know, there was a big Urban Institute report about that pretty recently that concluded that, you know, including on-time rent payments is going to help potential black borrowers much more um, than anyone else. And, and you hope that this really starts to um, even out some of the disparities that we've had. You know, it's no it's no secret. We, we at Housing Wire have been very committed to reporting out uh, some of the challenges facing, uh, you know, black homeownership. And um, this may be the most consequential um, real world application, you know, that that's come through in, in many years. I agree with you. And, and to your point, you know, it's not adding more risk. It's actually, I mean, we, and think about how much more data we have now uh, versus even say five years ago and how we can, uh, you know, split that data up and see it. So it is a way to open the credit box that is less risky. It's actually looking at a broader set of, of, you know, reports that will tell you what you need to know about the consumer's ability to repay. So for me, that was just like, I actually wasn't in that session and I was so upset. I was like, I wish I was in that session to just to kind of get the feel of like, what was the room like? What was, you know, but I, I did get to talk to a lot of people afterwards and definitely this was, this was huge. Yeah, there's a lot of buzz in general around the credit box. And and I know that the FHFA and even the FHA have not really shown a, a willingness to really expand the credit box in terms of, you know, what what they will accept for their their underwriting standards. Um, but having said that, you know, this is pretty big. And, and there's also just a lot of interest in general in in credit. And, and we see this very often in the rental space, in multifamily especially. And so uh, this week, you know, kind of overshadowed by uh, the, the classic FICO news, but uh, there, there's a company called Built Rewards and they operate a loyalty program and, and, um, and they have a credit card that converts rent payments into points, kind of like a, you know, like, Surely you've heard of the points guy, right? And sort of this idea that, you know, you can, you can save 1% or 2% on, on gas or on, you know, whatever. Um, and, and they just raised a new funding round that gives them a valuation, they say, that is $1.5 billion. And, you know, they, they typically work with the big, the big uh, developers and multifamily owners. So, you know, like the Avalon Bay communities, Blackstone, related companies, Equity Residential. Uh, but they're really starting to break now into single family rentals. Um, and, and even beyond, you know, invitation homes and kind of the, you know, the stalwarts of, of that sector. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see if they can bring that model toward home ownership, toward, uh, you know, just, just a bigger number of people. I think that's really, really interesting. And so many more people are, are comfortable with this idea of, you know, getting points back for what they would have already spent. You know, like you're already going to pay for your gas, right? So why not at least get 1% back? Every time you fill up at the pump using this credit card or whatever, you know, you pay your rent and, and now you get 2% back on, on that same card that you, you've just paid. And, and maybe you can put it toward, I don't know, whatever. Maybe it's something on Amazon. Maybe it's a hotel or, or, you know, vacation or whatnot. But it's, um, it's a really interesting concept. And I'm, I'm really fascinated to see where it ends up because I, I think we're, we're very, very early on in, in the evolution of this. I agree with you. You wrote a story uh, this week about invitation homes, speaking of which, right? Um, seeking a, a billion dollar uh, 
joint venture as home prices fall. So, so tell us what's in that. Yeah, this this is a report from Bloomberg, which broke the story earlier this week, and and uh, yeah, it's it's exactly what you say. Invitation Homes is seeking a joint venture partner, and they want to take advantage of uh, the potential, not potential, it's already happening, it is a drop in home prices. And so they've uh, enlisted the help of a, a pretty big commercial brokerage called Eastill Secured, and they're looking to find a partner for a billion-dollar joint venture. And uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen. Uh, the reason that they're doing this is because uh, you know it's, it's challenging given that <laughs> the stock market is, is pretty far down, and their stock price has declined almost, almost by a third this year. So it would be cheaper for them to try to raise money through a joint venture than, you know, to, to be tapping their own, their own equity. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see a company that is already, I think, 85,000 units deep in the single family space getting even bigger, uh, potentially, right? And, and that's because they have a big advantage in, in paying with just, I mean, they, they have silly amount of money. And they're going to pay cash, right? And so they have the advantage over the everyday person who maybe has to spend seven two seven three on a mortgage, right? Um, on some of these homes, and and they can rent it out. Maybe they'll sell it in a few years. Maybe they'll keep it. You know, it's good liquidity, right? You still have a number of people that are interested in in you know having a larger space. Having you know maybe an office or, or having a backyard for the dog you know when you previously lived in the city or whatnot so um, it's it's a pretty smart play we're seeing a lot of interest in the single family rental market in general um, it's still a very hot space and I think it's going to continue to be we're we're also seeing a lot of home builders that are are desperate to shed inventory um, that are looking to to sell in bulk and, and in a lot of cases the people who are buying those homes in bulk are investors who are turning these properties into single family rentals. So it's, it's a space that um, is, I think, probably only going to continue to grow and uh, one to watch. Absolutely one to watch. I, I, uh, I hear echoes of maybe why you might want more space there when you're talking about walking the dog. And of course you have a, a, <laughs> a baby. So yeah. No, I'm, I'm a city slicker. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> one, one day maybe I'll, I'll own a, like a nice brownstone in Brooklyn and, and I'll have that, uh, that little yard, you know, it's usually like a, like a concrete slab and, <laughs> uh, and maybe a home office that, that used to be a closet. So that's, that's my dream here. Uh, that's your aspiration. Good to know. Yeah. Single family rental. So huge right now. Um, you know, you and I've talked about this and of course, uh, Logan Motoshami, our lead analyst has talked about the mortgage rate lockdown, the premise that, you know, people locked into those super low rates, they just are not going to have a lot of incentive to put their house on the market, uh, until rates fall a little bit more significantly, right. Uh, back into the five range even, or, or more so that, you know, they're not, they're not going to be more house poor, you know, why would you trade the payment again? We're talking about the payment, um, for something more. So, with that, we know that that's going to keep inventory low, which locks out a lot of people who might otherwise want to be home buyers. Yeah, inventory is probably going to remain low, you know, at least for the next year or two. And 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 also, it, it takes a while for new home builders to get their product to market. It's it's not like we suddenly have you know a massive influx of uh, labor that is is ready, willing, and able to do you know home building. Um, we we still have some supply chain issues. We still have um, general slowness in building, you know, they don't build these things in three months, you know, like it, it takes them a while. And, and the bigger factor here being one, 
they don't want to build. <laughs> it's not that they don't want to build, right. but but you know they they need assurances that when they do build a house that they're going to get you know a certain return on that investment. And that return used to be you know around twenty five thirty percent, which is I mean that's a great great number, um, but there just aren't many buyers anymore. And so, you know, the new home builders, they're, they're guided by their, their own series of, of selfish, but totally understandable reasons for, you know, constructing a house and selling it. And yeah, they're, they're not going to. And to your point, as you mentioned, if you're an existing home buyer or existing homeowner, you are not going to put your house on the market, not get top dollar, and then buy in the same market unless you really have to. And and so it makes you wonder where is that inventory going to come from? Well, it's probably going to come in the form of multifamily. It's going to come in the form of, you know, rental construction, which has been doing pretty well. There there are I think more multifamily units that have been in development than than at any point in recent history. Um, but we are starting to see that slow down. We're starting to see permits fall. We are we're not going to see the pace of construction last like that. And that's because those same developers are affected by uh, the same economic problems everyone else is dealing with, right? Like they need financing to build. These are very expensive projects. They don't pay in cash. You know, they, they need a bank. They need, they need a lender that is going to, to give them money at, at a reasonable rate. And um, right now that's just not really achievable. So uh, it's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's certainly going to, present a conundrum for a lot of folks in the industry over the next few years. And and all that to say, our demographics haven't really changed that much. We still have a huge number of millennials that are entering those prime, you know, home buyer years and they want to buy homes, but they can. And so they're going to rent and, and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll have uh, inventory pick up as conditions start to, to, to normalize, but it's, it's just, nobody knows when. So it's a, uh, it's going to be a long winter. Nobody knows when. And, you know, part of this is, you know, the Federal Reserve, it's it's funny because we do see different federal agencies really trying to um, cut costs for people, on, for closing costs, for instance. So if you think about title, if you think about um, appraisal, some of the things that the government is now allowing to, to cut that cost. But at the same time, the Federal Reserve, which I know is not controlled by the federal government in the same way as those agencies, has said very openly they are putting the pain on the housing market specifically, they need a housing reset so that, uh, you know, and, and with interest rates. So they are dealing out this pain at the very same time we're looking for like these incremental small small ways to do it. But really until some of that breaks as far as the mortgage interest rate, I you know, we're, we're in a tough spot. Yeah. I mean, the, the Fed, the way they operate, it is, it is the hammer. Everything is the nail. And, you know, there are going to be casualties and, and their concern is inflation. And that's that's it. You know, they don't, they don't stay up and think about, you know, job growth. They don't think about how the companies are are handling it. They are thinking very, very, very big macro, and they want to get inflation down to the two percent level. and And that is hard because you know we have a lot going on. There's there's still the war in Ukraine. We still have, you know, oil issues. We still have. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say we have some some corporate greed that is contributing to these problems. Uh, we have a lot of factors that you know can't just be solved by interest rates either. So it's, it's, it's a protracted problem that is not going to seek 
a resolution for, you know, I, I think a few quarters at least. So uh, we're, we're going to be watching very closely next week when the Fed raises rates. I, I think the consensus is they're going to raise it another 75 basis points because they really do want to get down to that 2% mark. But really what's going to be worth watching is is clues about the future. You know, okay, so we raised 75 again, but here's what we're thinking in terms of the first, first quarter where here's, here's, you know, what it looks like from our vantage. So that's going to affect everything. And so next week is is going to be a really busy week for everybody, I think. Absolutely. And we'll be we'll be checking back with housingwire.com. That's where we can find all these amazing stories as well as realtrends.com. Uh, James, thanks so much for all the commentary and insights and for the great work that your teams are doing. Thanks, Sarah. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer form digital content, the Housing Wire magazine, member exclusive rates to in-person events like Housing Wire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.